I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Nate Madry, the Senior Research Analyst at Coinmetrics with me today. Nate, how are you? I'm doing well, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You and the folks at Bitstamp just created a report, which is quite interesting, called The Rise of Stablecoins. And so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about how big this whole market has gotten as you mentioned at the very onset, stablecoin supply has exploded in 2020, but it's unclear exactly why. After it took five years for stablecoin supply to reach $6 billion, it only took another four months for it to grow from $6 billion to $12 billion following the March 12th crypto crash. We're going to talk all about that. Before we get too far into it, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your work at Coinmetrics and kind of what Coinmetrics is for those that are still learning about digital assets? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, I'm a senior research analyst at Coinmetrics. I lead most of our research efforts here. And what we do at Coinmetrics is we're a crypto data provider. We provide a, a large variety of data. Our kind of bread and butter is our network data which is basically on-chain data that we're deriving from the blockchain. It's different blockchains themselves. But then we also do a whole suite of market data that we get from exchanges and we do indexes as well. So my my whole kind of approach to research is I take a very data-driven approach. I let kind of the data speak for itself. Um, And one of my other big things I work on here at Quinmetrics is our state of the the network newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So be sure to check that out as well. And so one of the things that I'd like to highlight is you mentioned data around digital assets. And by the way, we're really trying to push the market to see that these are mostly digital assets and not crypto. We really like the terminology digital assets. I'm curious if you have an opinion about that. But you mentioned the data around here and to do analysis. And I think for people that are still learning about this, they are often very surprised about some of the breadth and depth of data that is starting to pop up in digital assets. In your you know, time so far in this asset class, can you kind of maybe quickly opine about the, the depth, the breadth, and the quality of data that you're starting to see now to analyze? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, so as someone who's always loved data, I was naturally drawn to this space because there just is an amazing amount of rich data. So one of the great things about digital assets, we actually call them crypto assets at at Coinmetrics, but it's definitely thinking along the same lines. Um, So there's just a ton of data that's that's publicly available just because of the nature of these digital assets where every transaction is publicly recorded on a blockchain. Um, First of all, just going through transaction by transaction lets you get a, a a really incredible amount of rich data. Um, but it also lets you do things like looking at like supply distributions, like who, how many different um, 
people are holding these these digital assets and how much of each asset are they holding. And you can look, say, take an asset like Bitcoin, you can see, okay, a large majority of the supply is held by small amount of addresses um, or, or vice versa. And it just gives you kind of a whole new look into assets that you don't really get with tra traditional assets and a whole new level of kind of auditability and transparency mm -hmm. that personally I think is fascinating. So a little one-on-one for those that are obviously very native to this asset class, but for those that are learning, just quickly surmise, what is a stable coin? Yeah, so a stable coin, as the name implies, are basically types of digital assets that are pegged to um, an outside asset so their price remains stable. So stable coins were basically created as a reaction to kind of the volatility of Bitcoin and other digital assets. Um, so the way that most stable coins work is that a large majority of them are just pegged to the U.S. dollar. So basically, these digital assets are designed so their their price always stays at a dollar, at least in theory. We'll talk about a little later how that's that's not always the case. Um, they could be pegged to kind of any asset. They're you know any fiat currency, the euro, other currencies. Some are even now being designed that are pegged to different types of assets like gold. Um, so kind of the the backing asset can change, but but the basic idea is just to have an asset where the price remains relatively stable. So you can have kind of the benefits of a digital currency, a digital asset without the crazy price volatility. Now let's talk about use cases. We're going to jump right into that. So out there from what you've been able to tell thus far, we're going to talk about Tether. We're going to talk about, you know, all the different uh, types of iterations around stable coins, but majoritively I'd like to know, and I'm sure the listeners would like to know what are stable coins mostly used for? Yeah. Great question. And so that's a lot of what I go into the report. Um, and it's a little bit, bit of a mystery, to be honest. But the, the main use cases up to this point have been trading related. So they're used extensively for trading. Um, Tether in specific is, is kind of one of the main quote currencies on a lot of major exchanges around the world now. Um, but they're also used for kind of within exchanges themselves for inter-exchange settlements. Um, th those and, and arbitrage is another big one. And, and we'll talk about that as well. Those are kind of the main use cases, but then there's also the the right now fringe use cases, which are starting to, I think, become more and more popular, which is as a medium of exchange. So just as a way to send payments across the world, for example, global remittances, cross-border payments. Um, I, I think that's kind of one, one of the real big potential use cases of, of stable coins that we'll probably eventually see more and more. And then they're also being used more in, in things like decentralized finance. Um, as collateral or, or ways for lending crypto and other use cases like that. Right. And some of them are actually made from collateralizing that digital asset. Um, so let's start with your segment here, the rise of Tether. The idea of having a stable digital currency has existed for a long time and even predates Bitcoin. But for all intents and purposes, the rise of stablecoins started in early 2015 when digital assets uh, exchanges began listing Tether for trading. So for those that are unfamiliar again with Tether, and for those that are, it's still always good to have a refresh. What is Tether? And what if it's what is its most kind of usual purpose? As you mentioned, there are those in the trading atmosphere. What is Tether used for and what is it? Yeah, so Tether is still by far the largest stablecoin. It's also pretty much the first stablecoin. I think it's worth briefly just talking about how, how Tether works and how it came about. So, so Tether kind of pioneered this um, 
US dollar pegged version of stable coins. And the way it works in theory is that Tether has a reserve of US dollars of X amount. And in order to print new Tether, you put $1 into this reserve. So say there's a billion Tether out there. In theory, there's, there's a billion dollars in this reserve. And that, that's kind of what is supposed to keep the, the price stable. Um, and Tether, like you mentioned, it kind of first came around in, in 2015. And since then, a lot of other stable coins have, have come and kind of copied that, um, that model. But Tether still remains by far the, the largest stable coin by pretty much all measures. Um, there, there has been some, some controversy around Tether throughout the years, which we can talk about a little if you want about, you know, specifically around, do they actually have the amounts in the reserve that they claim? Um, and th this is also kind of one of the complicating factors of, of stable coins is, you know, they have a lot of the benefits of auditability and transparency that we were talking about at the top. You can see the transactions on the blockchain, but then there's also this, this reserve being held in the background, this reserve of US dollars that's not on the blockchain. So that, that part is not as transparent and that, that can lead to some issues. Um, but Tether for the most part is, is been used extensively in trading. Um, and that's, that's by far the biggest use case of Tether. It's, it's used in trading and, and on exchanges. And moving away from trading, you also talk about DAI. And so tell folks, you know, we've had uh, Maker on, we had Mariano on from Maker. But briefly mention kind of the role of DAI, because that is not pegged to the U.S. dollar. That is something that is completely different. Yeah, so DAI is a, is a completely different stablecoin. So it's it's one of the only, maybe only the, the really big decentralized stablecoin right now. So things like Tether, like I just mentioned, they, they have a centralized company, kind of a traditional company that controls this reserve to keep the stablecoins pegged. DAI is different because there's no one central company that controls this collateral, that controls the reserve. You know, MakerDAO um, essentially created DAI, but MakerDAO does not control the, the reserves that back DAI. So the way that DAI works is anyone can can basically mint new DAI by putting a certain amount of crypto, um, locking it down as collateral. And I believe right now it, you need to be at least 150% um, collateral. So say you put down $150, you can print $100 worth of DAI. So the, this reserve of, and the other big difference here too, is the reserve is in cryptocurrency itself. So it's in um, it's in ETH, it's in other, it's in BAT, and it's in other kind of cryptocurrencies like that. Um, so that that creates a lot of different interesting use cases. It also creates some issues, but, which again, we can talk about later in the report where, where DAI has actually come off its price peg a little more than other cryptocurrencies because related to the fact that it is decentralized. But it's also really intriguing, I think, because it, it's the first truly decentralized kind of crypto native stablecoin. Um, and because of that, it, it's used extensively in, in DeFi and a lot of other uh, decentralized applications. Right. And so for those that are unfamiliar, so uh, basically what you're dealing with right now is that DAI, that is the stablecoin from the Maker Foundation, MakerDAO, um, that is, it was collateralized, as you mentioned, with Ethereum initially. And then about six months ago, seven, eight months ago, they went to multi-collateral die, which means that there was maybe, I think it was 10 or 15 or 20 different digital assets that you can now use, or it was a handful of those that you can use to create these. The process is quite interesting. You go onto their website. Um, it's a fairly decent UI and UX, I will say. 
Um, and then you can create or mint these stable coins. Um, and as we're alluding to, as Nate alluded to, these are being used more and more these days. I believe we're in excess of two billion that is locked in DeFi products now these days. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds right. It just hit a big milestone. It's been going crazy recently. Just yes. more and more is locked every day. Yes, this this world of decentralized finance, or as other people call it, open finance, has been incredibly hot. I guess you can say over the last few months. Um, and so the promise of this is very encompassing from new forms of lending to collateralization to you name it. Uh, anything that is being done in the traditional world in terms of finance, uh, folks are trying to recreate it in a decentralized manner. And these stable coins, as Nate alluded to, it, are very important. So we, you, you alluded to the breaking of the peg a few times, and before we talk about supply growth, let's just get into that. What does that mean? So a stablecoin, I think many people think, will just be the equivalent of one U.S. dollar. Why does that not stay that way? Yeah, so in theory, it should always stay at a dollar, but really what we see is that stablecoin prices tend to fluctuate above and below a dollar. I mean, usually it's kind of by, by small amounts, fractions of a penny. Usually they stay kind of within a dollar and one cent to 99 cents. Um, but even those small fluctuations can have pretty big consequences. And, and at a basic level, what, what's driving this is just, you know, basic supply and demand. If, if supply or if, sorry, if demand for a stable coin shoots up um, and it outpaces supply, then you'll see kind of a premium for stable coins on, on certain exchanges. And that, um, we saw a big example of that on, on March 12th when crypto, had a big crash, you know, the traditional equity markets crash as well, but crypto crash, Bitcoin price dropped over 50% basically in a day. Um, and as crypto prices, as digital asset prices crashed, we saw the demand for stable coins shoot up, um, most likely because people were panicking that, that Bitcoin prices were dropping down and they wanted to kind of trade out of Bitcoin into stablecoins as a safe haven. So we saw demand for, for stablecoins shoot up, and that caused the price to go above the $1 peg, at least temporarily. Now, again, for those that are just getting into this world and are just listening to this, the March 12th event um, or the surrounding events has been talked about on my show before and has also been talked about as an industry. What you were dealing with, obviously, in March was a total market capitulation. We saw everything going to a correlation of one. And what happened was that, especially many hedge fund managers who had Bitcoin, were selling it ferociously because they were getting uh, margin called. And so they needed to sell anything that was liquid. And so you saw this cascading effect happen within Bitcoin. But you also saw some issues with Maker uh, also, especially. And so it was very interesting, though, because normally in traditional finance, when you have this massive capitulation, we have circuit breakers, uh, especially on the NYSE. We did not have that uh, within digital assets, and everything kind of got hit, and it kept functioning. Uh, nothing really broke, uh, per se. You know, some things obviously did get close to breaking, and uh, actually, if I'm not mistaken, on the cascading, especially in Bitcoin, I believe it was a hacker that actually kind of fixed the problem. 
Um, we don't have to go into discussion about that, but it was a very interesting time. And as you mentioned, the, the stable coin case was very interesting. So let's talk about the supply growth. And so you alluded to March um, and in your research paper, which again, uh, we'll put a link to because it's great. You mentioned different uh, stable coins and their supply growth. So you talk about PAX, you talk about DAI, you talk about USDC. And everything here, universally, the supply growth is pretty much going up. So tell us about what's happening on the macro side here for the supply side. Yeah, so we saw this huge explosion in supply after March 12th. And as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, stablecoin supply has basically doubled since March 12th. Um, and it took about five years for it to get up to that point. So a lot of different things happened on March 12th. And I think probably the biggest thing was, was the general rush of safety where people just wanted to, to get into stable coins. But we also saw an increase, you know, because of volatility, we saw increased demand for trading. Um, we also see, you see stable coins used a lot as kind of a, uh, a replacement for a fiat on-ramp, especially in countries like China, where you, there, are, there are restrictions against trading fiat currencies directly for crypto. So a lot of um, you know, OTC trading and other trading in China and other uh, Asian countries happen, happen in stable coins. So we, we saw an increase in that. We, we kind of saw a couple of different things to come, come together and we saw this huge increase in demand for stable coins immediately after, after March 12th. Um, but there, there was kind of a, a cycle that, that happened there though related to the price bag. So because this demand all of a sudden shot up, that caused Tether's price to go above its, its price bag. And as I mentioned on March 12th itself, pretty much every stablecoin jumped above its price bag, at least for a while. But most kind of came back to the $1 price bag within a week or so. Tether is a little bit unusual because it stayed above its price peg for months, basically through mid-May. And again, it's just kind of a fra fractions of a penny ab above a price peg. But, but what we saw as Tether remained above its peg, we just saw more and more Tether being printed. So the, I have a pretty interesting chart in the report which shows on one axis, um, on the left axis, it shows the amount that Tether's price is above or, or below the peg. On the right axis, it shows Tether's increase in supply. Um, specifically, we use free float, free float supply coin metrics, which is a special metric we created to basically measure the amount of supply that's actually out um, in the public. It's not being held by the Tether Foundation or whatever. So, so you can see on these days where Tether's price is above a dollar, Tether's supply was increasing sometimes by over 100 million a day. And as you said there, so pretty much every stablecoin supply increased, but Tether's supply increased more than all the other stablecoins combined. So this, this cycle of kind of uh, arbitrage and, and printing more Tether as the price is above a dollar was created, was leading to this huge explosion in supply, but it's also related to this big spike in demand that we saw just across the board for pretty much every stablecoin. So most of these, Tether not, but most of the other stablecoin iterations have governance. And in that governance protocol, there is the constant monitoring of data inputs. And so you have a lot of these that are built on Ethereum, and so they're using iterations of smart contracts with you know governance around them. And again, majoritarily speaking, you are supposed to be able to have oracles that are looking at data to say, okay, 
something X is happening here that could cause Y to happen. And so we need to adjust things very quickly, very dynamically. Would you say that the state of governance in stablecoins is capable of handling more of these shocks right now? It's a good question. I think it, it's tough with something like Tether because their their governance is pretty opaque. Like we, I, I actually went through and read the Tether white paper, paper for this report. I looked through a lot of their documentation and it's still pretty unclear exactly how their process for minting new Tether works. Um, a lot of it goes directly to exchanges, to Bifinex specifically, but it, it's it's not very transparent about how their whole governance process works for, for minting new stablecoins. Other stablecoins are better, you know, like DAI is probably the best because it's it's inherently decentralized. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think that's part of the issue right now is just there's there's not too much clarity around the governance for these things. So when when shocks like this happen, it can take a while to figure out exactly why all of a sudden there's billions of dollars worth of stablecoins coming out, and you know, even after looking into it, it, it can be unclear. So. I think we're moving in the right direction in a lot of ways, but there's still a lot that needs to be done in, in terms of governance for stablecoins. So as you alluded to, uh, using stablecoins as a medium of exchange uh, in one of your sections called Rising Tides, global remittance and cross-border payments are a natural use case for stablecoins, giving their ease of international transfer. Perhaps these types of payments are increasing due to hyperinflation in many fiat currencies following the March 12th crash. So talk to us about this. What is happening? Are you seeing this actually, are you seeing stablecoins actually being used for some of these use cases like cross-border? Yeah, so it's a little harder to to figure out exactly what they're being used for just by looking at kind of the on-chain data and the market data. But one interesting thing that I did find is if you look at the address distribution for Tether in particular, um, so, so we look at basically the amounts that different addresses are holding and then put them into bands by that. So we look, for example, we'll look at the number of addresses who are holding between $1 and $10 worth of Tether versus the amount of addresses holding $10 to $100, et cetera, going all the way up to $10 million. So after March 12th, we saw a big explosion in addresses holding relatively small amounts and holding $100 less $100 or less worth of Tether. Um, to, we saw almost like a million new addresses after March 12th. And to me, that, that implies that there was a big increase in people either using it as a medium of exchange or, or for small trades. And that's kind of, it, it's interesting because this, this was happening at the same time that these other arbitrage opportunities that I was talking about were happening, which those tend to be more kind of institutional investors or, or large investors. Um, so, it, so we saw these kind of dual things happening at once. We saw larger investors piling into stablecoins, but then we also saw the, this explosion in kind of smaller, more retail investors or even people that are potentially using it for a, for a medium of exchange. And so lastly, let's talk about this, the uncertain future component of what you wrote about. I think in general, one of the things that most people have unequivocally always questioned is the regulatory scrutiny on these different digital assets. And we've seen people, especially Congressman McHenry, talk about Bitcoin as an unstoppable force. We've seen the CFTC and the SEC opine about Bitcoin and Ethereum. But then this world of stablecoins comes in, and now we have things like CBCDs, where we have sovereign nations looking at digital assets, digital currencies. Do you think that there is going to be more regulatory clarity? I'm not asking you to forecast, but 
do you think there's going to be more regulatory clarity on stablecoins sooner rather than later because of the interest among sovereign nations like China that are starting to play with these different types of uh, architectures? Yeah, I do. I think I think stablecoins and especially Tether have been on borrowed time for a while now. There, there's been a lot of regulatory heat around Tether and it's kind of miraculously avoided it and just kept going up. Um, but I think sooner rather than later, we're going to see some, some real clarity around this. Um, probably Tether kind of used as an example in certain ways, if they can actually pin down what, what's really going on behind the scenes there. Um, I, I think Libra too, you know, Facebook's stablecoin that, that they're working on is also in a way it's attracting more regulatory scrutiny. Um, again, because Facebook themselves also attracts a lot of regulatory scrutiny these days. So I think we're going to see more and more eyeballs turn towards this space. Um, and especially because, like you said, like Bitcoin itself is basically an unstoppable force. I think regulators are coming around to that more and they realize that they can't really control Bitcoin necessarily, but stablecoins is something that they can go after because there are these companies, at, at least for most stablecoins, there are these companies behind the scenes that are kind of controlling the reserves. I agree. Nate, where can people, I'll make sure that everyone has a link to the article and to the report that you published, but where can people find more of your work and Coinmetrics? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Nate Madry. Also check out Coinmetrics Twitter on, uh, hand, oh, sorry, also check out Coinmetrics on Twitter. I tweet from there a lot as well. And be sure to check out our State of the Network newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday. Yes, it does. And I will say that this is obviously myself, but I know members of my firm also look at this too. It is great work. And again, you know, coming at this from a perspective a few years ago, we didn't have analysis like what the folks at Coinmetrics are doing. They do great work. Um, and the analysis is spot on. And they are just really evolving into a important component of digital assets, especially from a asset and trading perspective. Um, so Nate, thank you for that. Thank you for this amazing report. We'll make sure everyone sees it and uh, we'll be catching up with you soon. Take care. Awesome. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.